Hello, fellow humans and whatever other species may be listening today. I'm Josh Schlossberg, and this is the Green Root Podcast. For this episode, we're talking with Haley Hawkins. As the Southern Rockies field representative for the Endangered Species Coalition, Haley organizes their campaign efforts in Colorado, New Mexico, and Arizona. While getting her MA in environmental leadership at Naropa University, Haley nurtured her passion for conservation by exploring the interconnectedness of all life and the impact of development on wildlife species. Haley began her environmental career in 2011, working with the Southern Alliance for Clean Energy and the Southern Energy Network, harnessing grassroots support for renewable energy in the Southeast. Welcome to the podcast, Haley. Thanks, Josh. I'm really excited to be here. Well, me too. So we had been in contact in the past uh, through some of my journalistic endeavors. I believe we've talked about endangered species stuff and wolves and other things like that. So I wanted to have you on the podcast to, frankly, to fill me in because I haven't been paying attention to that much, that stuff much recently. And I think some of our listeners could benefit from it as well. Yeah, that sounds great. There's a lot going on, as always. Um, someone's always trying to do something bad, you know, and so people like us have to stand in the way of that and be a backstop, as well as trying to, at the same time, make um, forward momentum and proactive change. So mm-hmm. it's um, there's a lot going on. It's a big, there's big shoes to fill, and uh, yeah, we need all the help we can get. So thank you for having having me on and helping me uh, spread the message. For sure. So maybe you can give a rundown of what the Endangered Species Act is. I don't mean reading the legalese, but just what's the concept of it and why should we care about it? Yeah, I mean, straight up, I don't speak legally, legally so um, I'm glad that that's the, that's the prerequisite. So the Endangered Species Act is a law that was passed in 1973, and it was um, signed by President Nixon, uh, who was a Republican, And it passed almost unanimously out of the House and the Senate, which is already like, that's just amazing. That very rarely ever happens. So um, the bill is, was foundationally very bipartisan and it protects our endangered wildlife um, in the United States. And it does that in in a variety of different ways. Um, Some of the ways that you probably, that your listeners probably know about are, um, it's, it created mechanisms to list species. And so you can list a species as endangered. And endangered means a species is at risk of going extinct. Another um, uh, another like tier you can rank, uh, list species as is threatened. Mm-hmm. And threatened actually means that a species is in danger of becoming endangered. Okay. Um, so there's those kind of two different levels of listing that can happen through the Endangered Species Act. And then uh, the act also provides funding for species recovery. It allows um, the federal agencies to designate critical habitat to help protect species. It also provides um, certain mechanisms for private landowners to um, consult with uh, federal agencies maybe before they do a really big project and could potentially disrupt habitat. Uh, and it does a handful of other things, but that's kind of the basis of the Endangered Species Act. And um, it would be important to mention that it's actually one of the strongest environmental laws in the world. Mm-hmm. And it works. It works so well that 99% of species that are listed on the Endangered Species Act are still with us today, which is a huge success rate. And I know one thing that's always talked about with the Endangered Species Act is like, well, you know, what about delisting? Well, in the grand scheme of things, we've had the Endangered Species Act for, you know, a little over 
uh, like 40, 40, almost 45 years, almost 50 years. Math is hard right now, but um, mm -hmm. uh, when you're on the spot on a podcast, but um, we've had it first. We've had the Endangered Species Act for a while, yes, but also we've been leading up to these extinctions for hundreds of years now, like at least since, you know, settler, settler colonialism in the United States. And so to say that we can recover species with very limited funding, by the way, like the Endangered Species Act is chronically underfunded with very limited funding and, and limited time, you know, um, I think that that's, that's a mistake that people make. Uh, when it comes down to it, the Endangered Species Act is highly successful, hmm. and it would be even more successful if it was fully funded by our federal um, Congress. For sure. Yeah, it definitely seems to be a strong law, and it's done a lot of good. And you mentioned the delisting. So the concept of delisting is that when the government decides, okay, it's no longer endangered, so we can take them off the list because the populations are recovering. And of course, sometimes the criticism is, well, have they really recovered enough to be removed from the endangered species? So that's kind of some of the controversy, right? Yeah, definitely. Because um, oftentimes people, uh, certain members of Congress or um, people that have certain agendas will try to prematurely delist species. And one kind of sneaky way that people try to do that is by, by bypassing science and bypassing the Endangered Species Act. And um, certain members of Congress might try to delist a species congressionally. And what that means is they'll try to um, pass a bill um, with language that delists a species, um, essentially. And this often happens with uh, wolves. Uh, in the United States, depending on where you are, uh, wolves are typically listed as either um, threatened or endangered. In the Midwest, they're listed as threatened. Uh, here in Colorado, they're listed as endangered. If you go up to like a little corner of um, Utah, uh, all of Montana, Wyoming, and Idaho, they're delisted. It gets, wolves is like a very complicated issue, unfortunately for them and their recovery. But um, anyway, there's pretty consistently attempts to congressionally delist wolves, again, bypassing science, bypassing um, the Endangered Species Act, uh, which is so frustrating. Um, so we're typically fighting against things like sneaky things like that um, in, our, in the work that we do. For sure. And yeah, you're doing some great work and I really appreciate the stuff that you're doing. And you definitely called my attention to a lot of stuff when I talked to you as a source for my work. So so what are some of the things that are going on around Endangered Species Act today? I mean, it's not just a static thing, right? It's not just happening in the background. There are things that evolve with it. What's going on with it? Sure. So, right, as the Endangered Species Coalition, the organization that I work for, we, are, we see ourselves as the backstop to make sure that um, the Endangered Species Act stays protected and stays strong. And, you know, we do that through uh, mostly... Uh, advocacy, grassroots organizing, uh, a little bit of, you know, we can do a little bit of lobbying, what's um, allowed for groups that are 501c3s. But um, so it's kind of the perspective that we're coming from. But you're absolutely right that uh, the Endangered Species Act is moving and shifting depending on like, you know, who's interpreting it and who's in charge. And um, with our current administration, as you as some of you may be able to imagine, it's been um, it's been a tough three and a half years. Uh, I mean, it was hard before that, but especially. And so uh, currently what's happening with the Endangered Species Act, and to be able to kind of give you the full story, I'm going to go back a little bit to, um, oh, man, I think it was two, 2018 maybe, because um, now I'm getting my timeline confused because it's been a whirlwind. Of course. But um, I think it was summer 2000. 
Oh God, maybe it was last summer. I don't even know at this point. Um, so one summer recently, <laughs> um, the administration uh, floated some regulatory changes, some draft regulatory changes to the Endangered Species Act. Mm-hmm. And we were horrified when we saw them. Like, ugh. Um, and those changes included uh, ignoring climate change and listing decisions and critical habitat designations. Uh, for instance, coral reefs are being highly affected by climate change, right? Ocean acidification. But under these new regulations, we wouldn't be able to list a species or designate critical habitats solely on concerns around climate change, which is super bogus, right? Because we know the climate's changing and a lot of crazy stuff is happening. Um, So that was one regulatory change. We also saw um, a change that would take away automatic protections for species listed as threatened. Uh, A little bit of background on that. When a species is uh, listed as threatened, they automatically get the same protections that endangered species do to kind of prevent them from becoming endangered. Well, that was taken away. Now, when a species is listed as threatened, they don't automatically receive those protections and they have to go through even more red tape. Hmm. Um, also, it, uh, those regulatory changes weakened the consultation process processes with the departments. Um, and oh my gosh, and then like another a terrible one is it allows economic considerations to be taken into account in listing decisions, which is like against the Endangered Species Act itself, which says that listing decisions should be based solely on the best available science. So, I mean, these regulatory changes were just absolutely like, we like lost our minds. You know, we were like, are you kidding us? Like, this is crazy. So we, um, of course, the, the Endangered Species Act and, and a lot of other laws mandate public comment when, when changes are made like this. So there's public comment. And we got almost a million comments submitted in opposition to these regulatory changes. Hmm. Uh, so fast forward like six to eight months or something. Um, and, uh, you know, they were supposed to look at all of the comments in opposition. They, you know, they ignored them. Hmm. And they finalized those regulatory changes um, that all of the ones that I just named. So that's like the craziest, that's the recent drama that's happening with the Endangered Species Act. Luckily, we have, um, let's see, we have Senator Udall, who, who is a Democrat out of New Mexico. Uh, he led in the formation of the Paw and Fin Act, which is the Protect America's Wildlife and Fish in Need Act. It's long, but Paw and Fin is real cute, right? Mm-hmm. So um, that bill pretty much it's like it's like two sentences long it pretty much just says we nullify these regulatory changes um and so that is um some like that's oh and then also um senator or excuse me congressman grahalva a dem out of arizona he did a um he's doing like a the house partner mm-hmm. partner bill so there's a, a pawn fin act in both the house and the senate right now and so that's kind of like our guiding light right now like that's what mm-hmm. we have to kind of stop these regulatory changes since they were finalized. So we are working to try to um, encourage these bills to move through the House and the Senate um, and, yeah, nullify these terrible regulatory changes to the the Endangered Species Act. Sure, yeah. Well, it's interesting because a lot of environmentalists, of course, disagree on lots of different things, and we talk about that a fair amount on the podcast. But it seems like support for the Endangered Species Act you know, maybe strengthening it or whatever, that's across the board, all environmentalists 
and just your average person who likes looking at a tree probably thinks that that's super crucial. So the question is, so what's uh, Colorado's congressional delegation doing about it? We're here in Colorado, not to make this all about Colorado, but ecosystems tend to be about, you know, your watershed, your landscape. So this is the area that we are needing to safeguard. So what's going on with that? Are they sticking up for the critters? Yeah, I am so glad that you asked this question. With the PAW and FIN Act, like if we kind of stick to the PAW and FIN Act for just a second, um, Congressman Nagoose, Congressman Crow, and Congresswoman DeGette, they are all, they've all signed on as co-sponsors to the PAW and FIN Act. And let me make sure, Hmm. yep. Oh, and also um, Congressman Perlmutter, can't forget him. He also uh, signed on as a co-sponsor to the PAW and FIN Act. So that's super awesome. Mm -hmm. Our... A Democratic uh, Congress people in Colorado are rocking it on that. Um, however, uh, con- uh, Senator Bennett has yet to sign on to the Pond Fin Act as a co-sponsor, which um, is surprising to me. Um, however, I have been we've I don't know I guess in the last like year like I feel like his his League of Conservation Voters score his like uh, which is. Uh, League of Conservation Voters is an or, or yeah is an organization that kind of ranks uh, congressional members based on how they vote and if they're like good for the environment or bad for the environment. But um, Senator Bennett's score has kind of been dipping a little bit. It's down to 86 percent, which um, is lower than it was. And so uh, really hoping that Senator Bennett kind of steps it up a little bit and becomes more of a champion for wildlife, even though he has been generally great in the past. But um I'm really seeing that I think he could step it up a little bit. Um, and one way to do that is to co-sponsor um, the Pond Fin Act in the Senate. Um, so also, that's Senator, you know, uh, U.S. Senator Michael Bennett. He's a Democrat. Yes. Yep. Our, our, our Democratic senator in Colorado. Yeah. So folks can get a hold of him if they want to at bennett.senate.gov slash public and contact him and let him know that they should get his shit together. <laughs> Yeah, that would be awesome. Please do that. Call or email Senator Bennett and ask him to co-sponsor the Pond Fin Act. Um, generally, the rest of the Colorado delegation, you know, unsurprisingly, um, maybe I shouldn't say that, but whatever, I'm going to say it. Uh, unsurprisingly, Congressman Buck, Congressman Lamborn, Congressman Tipton, um, and Senator Gardner, mm-hmm. um, have not signed on to the Pond Fin Act, and generally their League of Conservation voter scores are fairly lower. Sure. Bucks is zero um, percent, Lamborn's is seven percent, Tipton's is seven, and Cory Gardner's is actually thirty-six percent, which isn't—I mean, you know, it's not zero, but it's because <laughs> he has done some cool work on uh, public lands and the um, Land and Water Conservation Fund. So let's, you know, mm-hmm. let's give credit where credit is due, and you know, but. 36 is still a failing grade by far. So let's not, you know. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. In school, you don't make it to the next grade. So maybe uh, we could put something in place where if you don't have a passing score for your conservation stuff, then you don't make it to your next term. That's an interesting thought. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's not how things work. But <laughs> so let's maybe talk a little bit about wolves. Everyone loves wolves except for ranchers who are sometimes needlessly afraid of wolves. I've worked on the wolf issue for many years, starting out in Oregon. I am not up to date in regards to the most recent information here in Colorado. However, one of the most exciting things is the fact that there had been some scat samples 
collected in northwestern Colorado quite recently, this winter, I believe, and it that it's from wolves. So we're not thought, well, there's been debate about whether it's the gray wolf, whether they live in Colorado anymore. Of course, they did once upon a time, but they were all hunted to extinction. And so I guess these ones might have come in from Wyoming. There have been sightings over the years, but this was pretty much confirmed. So we've got those critters, but then there's also the issue of the Mexican gray wolf and whether that would be migrating up from the southwest. So what can you tell us about wolves in the Endangered Species Act? Yeah, so you brought up so many issues yeah. just now, and I'm gonna kind of like touch <laughs> on some of them and then we can keep chatting. Um, well, first I wanna say, um, I know some ranchers that are cool with cool about wolves, sure. and so kind of just wanted to, you know, although you know that that might be generally true. I uh, maybe I don't know. I, I guess I want to say that. Um, I yeah. I just I personally know some ranchers that are cool with them, and Absolutely. I think that uh, it's challenging to speak up against a, mo a vocal minority, which is right. kind of you know if we just talk about justice overall in the United States, like that's you know like white nationalists are a vocal minority. Like, why are we even talking? Like, how are they, oh God, how are they even a thing? Like, mm -hmm. so um, it's hard to fight that. But yeah, um, I know some rangers that are down with wolves, which is super awesome. Oh, Definitely. and there was a, I don't have the stats in front of me, um, but there was uh, just recently in the last couple months, a great survey that came out of CSU, Colorado State University, um, that talked about how there was, um, over majority support for wolves across the board in Colorado. They um, think that they surveyed likely voters. Ugh, have to find it. But um, like whether you were Democrat, Republican, man, woman, rancher, sports person, et cetera, like they, they saw majority support for wolves in Colorado. So that mm -hmm. was just super amazing. Um, okay, you talked, you mentioned wolf poop. I, I'm like a super, I like, super into scat, which is a, f a fancy name for poop. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, yeah, we found some wolf poop. And now that there's there's been sightings of wolves in Northwest Colorado, which is so amazing. It means that they are um, naturally making their way into Colorado. But I want to point out that that's like a miracle, yeah. right? Because in Wyoming, well, which where, you know, they're thinking the wolves are migrating down from. In Wyoming, wolves are... Uh, not listed on the Endangered Species Act, and they're actually considered vermin. They're considered pests. Mm. And so the law is that you can shoot a wolf any time of day, any day of the year, any way you want, and leave them in the field. It's not regulated. You don't have to get a tag. It's just like free-for-all there. So mm. it's actually like incredible that they are making it down from Yellowstone in Wyoming down to Colorado. Okay. Wanted to point that out, which is why it's been taking it's taken so long for them to get back here since the 1940s when, like you said, we eradicated them. And, you know, we didn't just hunt them. We ex like blew them up with explosives. We, <laughs> you know, like it was t it, we, we poisoned them. We put out carcasses like cow carcasses and poisoned them. Also, which conditioned them to attack livestock. Like so again, people like I don't know. It's just so frustrating. Um, so, yes, they're in Colorado now. Yes, it was a miracle that they got here. There um, are people in Colorado, unfortunately, that don't want them here. This pack up there is very precarious. It doesn't mean that, that wolves are recovered in Colorado, that they're back for sure. It's like one pack of wolves that, you know, could really easily go over the state line into Wyoming and get shot. You know, they're not 
they aren't bulletproof, you know, like, I don't know, I guess I just want to emphasize that it's a miracle they're here and they could be gone tomorrow. Like, this is a very precarious situation. So I'll I pause actually, there. Yeah, yeah. No, thanks for explaining that. That's super important. So I did find that little study. So this is from Center for Biological Diversity press release. 84% of Coloradans back wolf measure on November ballot. It's a peer-reviewed study authored by 11 researchers in public opinion, blah, blah, blah. Uh, shows 84% support among Colorado's public for this proposition to reintroduce gray wolves. And they also mention how, so that proposition is going to be on the ballot in November. And then the study also found, and this is important because as an environmental journalist, we don't always do our job as journalists. So Colorado's 10 largest circulation daily newspapers focus more on themes related to the overblown negative impacts of wolves than on the public's broad support for reintroduction. Surprise, surprise, surprise. Journalists going for clickbait. Who would have thought? Yeah, you know, Josh, let me ask, I want to ask you a question. Why, like, right, like, I guess it's, you know, that whole, if it bleeds, it leads mentality, clickbait, like, mm -hmm. like, isn't there, isn't there some, like, I guess I'm hesitating to ask this now, but, um, like, it. I mean, what's the, there's, there's, should be responsibility, right? Like, what's the, why, like, that, I guess that just makes <laughs> me mad. And so, Mr. Journalist Man, please explain to me, like, why, <laughs> Well, that takes its own podcast of its own. Uh, I've talked about it a bit on other podcasts, but just in brief, I do think that there is pressure to put out stories that is going to just get more clicks. So that will kind of raise the hackles on people. So they'll click it and because that drives the advertising dollars. So I think that's simply the, the short answer. So I've experimented with my positive stories versus my controversial stories. People like the controversial stories like 10 times more than they like the ones that actually have solutions. So we can blame journalists, but we also need to kind of blame ourselves for what we get attracted to. So that's part of it. We as readers are the ones who are driving what gets clicked. So keeping in mind the next time you see something online that it's like, oh, that makes me angry. I'm going to click on it versus something. Oh, this is positive. Well, you're going to be feeding one algorithm or the other for doing that. Ugh. I mean, you're like, what I'm hearing is capitalism. It all goes back to capitalism <laughs> and the patriarchy. That's another podcast too, but <laughs> that's certainly a thread in all of this, but we keep putting out the good information. Then there is, there are journalists out there who are trying to cover this stuff in a legitimate way. And uh, yeah, you just keep putting out the good stories and talking to the journalists. Hopefully it will get through. So yeah, where were we on the wolf stuff? Yeah, so I wanted to go back to, you also mentioned Mexican gray wolves, right. which um, I will admit to your listeners, this is embarrassing. I So I started working with the Endangered Species Coalition like almost four years ago. And before that, you know, I, I was, like you mentioned in my, when you were reading my bio, I was able to, uh, you know, um, tailor my master's to, you know, really look at wildlife issues and... Um, you know, despite all of that, it probably, I didn't know that the Mexican gray wolf was a, was even a thing until mm -hmm. like, you know, I started my job here and even like knowing that I was always, you know, really into wildlife and, you know, like definitely one of those like wolf people that, you know, loves wolves and canids. Um, yeah, I didn't even know about Mexican gray wolves until I started this job. And I'm embarrassed to say that because of just like how much I love wolves. And anyway, so if any of your readers haven't heard of the Mexican gray wolf, no big deal, because I hadn't either. Right. Um, but they are a subspecies of gray wolf that is um, native to 
the American Southwest in Mexico, and they are a little smaller than gray wolves. Um, and you know, maybe, you know, they go after maybe a little smaller prey. Um, and yeah, they're the, the most, uh, geographic or sorry, genetically distinct subspecies of gray wolf, like in the United States. Um, so they're really important. They're really cool. They're listed. They are definitely endangered. Like this subspecies is endangered under the endangered species act. There was reintroduction. A reintroduction happened in new, new Mexico and Arizona around the same time as the one in Yellowstone is a little bit after, and they have struggled Mm. real hard to recover. And a lot of that was because, you know, by the time they were listed on the Endangered Species Act in 1973, um, right after it was, or 74, right after it was formed, um, at that point, there was only seven of them left. Like they could only find seven of them, Mm -hmm. Uh, which is really bad because genetic diversity is something that makes a species strong. Um, We need diversity to fight diseases, to have um, healthy pups. Um, And I mean, think about like with that with people, you know, diversity is what makes us healthy. So it's the same thing. You know, of course we mirror nature, it's the same thing. So um, now the the population of Mexican gray wolves is is still pretty small. I mean, Josh, if you wanna, like they just came out with the number, it's maybe like a hundred, in the higher hundreds of how many there are in the wild, which isn't a lot. And we're seeing um, smaller litter sizes. We're seeing um, uh, more diseases. uh, And like, it's just not, the genetic situation is not going great down there. So that's a really big concern. Um, But also you mentioned uh, initially when we started bringing up wolves, you mentioned the possibility of them moving up north Mm -hmm. and colonizing Southern Colorado. Well, unless something changes, kind of soon that sure as heck won't happen because um i-40 in new mexico and arizona it runs uh horizontal through the both of the states like and kind of splits the states in half um i uh, right now under current policy mexican wolves are not allowed to go above i-40 which like doesn't make any sense to me one because wildlife don't see borders right they're not like oh look i should turn around and also i mean that's not i don't know when when, so when a wolf passes uh, goes over i-40 and goes north of i-40 they uh u.s fish and wildlife services which is the governing body of you know endangered species and the endangered species act sort of um they have to like go get that wolf Mm-hmm. and bring it back down. And so um, that costs money. That's also really dangerous to the wolf. Um, wolves often go into shock and will die when they're captured. Um, and so like we could potentially be, you know, killing an endangered species, which they like to say take, not kill. Um, it's kind of a euphemism. But um, so unless that policy changes, that's not going to happen anytime soon. They're not going to make it to Colorado. But scientists are saying, biologists are saying that they need to have that freedom. They need to be able to get over I-40 because we need to create geographically distinct populations between the, uh, or genetically distinct, excuse me, genetically distinct populations of the wolves. And we also need habitat connectivity so those wolves can go back and forth between the packs, intermix their genes. I'm going to, you know, be with you over here and move over here and do all this stuff. And that's what makes ecosystems and species healthy and resilient and um, what eventually leads to recovery. Like right now, it's almost like, you know, we've put 
a life jacket on the Mexican gray wolf. And we're like, go be free and swim. And they're like, this life jacket, like I'm trying, but, and thanks for keeping me alive. But this is kind of, I don't know. That was a weird metaphor. No, that that makes perfect sense. Well, Well, you're saying it's all about the land, right? So if we don't protect the landscapes, it doesn't matter if we have other sorts of protections in the law. If there's nowhere for them to go, they can't go there and they can't survive and they can't propagate their numbers. Uh, but something I just found was 163 yeah. Mexican wolves in the wild in New Mexico and Arizona. The number gone up a little bit, so that's a positive mm-hmm. thing. But yeah, it's a complicated issue. When I started writing about this, I was surprised with all the details I needed to get into. And to admit, I didn't know really that there was a Mexican wolf either until fairly recently. So I think clearly we need to get that out there more and journalists need to do their job a little better. But if folks are interested in some of the details, I wrote a piece for Enviro News a couple of years ago. You can find it on joshschlossberg.net. And uh, it's called Governments in Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, Arizona, Deliberately Derailed Mexican Wolf Recovery Documents Reveal. So I did an investigative report, a deep dive into basically a lot of the politicians on purpose hamstringing the plan and making it so these wolves were not going to really have much of a, a future. Some of this is the stigma against wolves and I think you're totally right that not all ranchers uh, oppose the existence of wolves. Absolutely not. There's an increasing number of ranchers who are a lot more ecologically minded, let's just say, or understand the role of nature to a certain degree. So they're not as threatened by that. But I do think there is just this underlying fear of wolves that comes from fairy tales, comes from all sorts of past history of wolf as the bad guy and stuff like that. When I was testifying on these issues many years ago in Oregon, there were folks who were coming to these hearings and they were comparing wolves to child molesters, which didn't even really make sense. One of them was talking about how, because this was during a time when wolves were coming in from Idaho into Oregon and we were trying to ensure protections for them. And one person said, we're going to have to build 10 foot fences around all of the schools so the wolves don't come in. And it's like, come on, get a grip, people. And some of the research I did at the time was around wolf attacks. So specifically, I looked into stuff around ranching and things like that. And certainly there's some depredation. That's what happens. But there are a lot of programs in place to compensate these ranchers. It's also a lot less than you'd think. And I don't have the numbers on this now, but I remember the numbers of dogs, domesticated dogs killing sheep and things like that and other livestock was actually greater than the wolves. So it's kind of a little bit blown out of proportion. And just in terms of, oh, I'm afraid that a wolf is going to kill me. Well, it's the data that I've found. So there's this one article on the Dodo in this. It's just this publication. It was written five years ago. And they tracked a lot of this information. So there were two documented fatal uh, attacks by wolves in North America in 2005 and another year, a few years later. There were a couple, there have been a few other attacks but it's so, so rare. Meanwhile, it was in 2014, there were 41 confirmed uh, fatal dog attacks. So if you're not afraid of a golden retriever killing you, which you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be afraid of a wolf killing you. <laughs> totally, and to, to make sure it's really clear, I think that that number that you found from the dodo, it was two, two wolf attacks. That was like 
in recorded history. Not for that year. It was like in the last hundred years Excellent or something. Point. Yeah. Even, a yeah. 2002 report prepared by the Alaska Department of Fish and Game found no human deaths in North America attributed to wild, healthy wolves since at least 1900. So there were a couple mm -hmm. that happened over the last 10 years. And there were a couple instances where I know in Nova Scotia where there were these breeding of coyotes coyotes and wolves had bred and so what ended up happening there is they had the size of the wolf and the lack of fear of a coyote and so i think that did happen in one occasion but it's you are way more likely to be killed by a dog and uh, none of that is very likely at all so the idea that a wolf is going to hurt you i mean maybe don't have your infant child walking alone through the forest but if you're doing that anyway you're probably not a very good parent to begin with <laughs> so keep an eye on your little ones uh, mountain lions bear they are wild creatures they can attack humans it is so rare that uh, it's not really something to even be on your radar and i just wanted to point that out there that there's I write horror fiction, and so sometimes I do make things monsters and things scary. I always try to make wolves the good guys because nice. they are so important to our ecosystem, and really, they don't want to have anything to do with you. If they're going to smell you from a mile away, and they're going to, if you catch a glimpse of a wolf, you should count yourself lucky because that is an extremely rare event, much less one wanting to aggress upon you in any way. So I just wanted to get that out of the way. I'm sure all my listeners know that, but it's an important thing to stress. It's, it's not even a statistical thing to be concerned about. Yeah. And, and speak, <laughs> no, thank you. Can I, can I add like one more ranty statistic to that? Sure, um, sure. You, you were mentioning um, uh, like, livestock predations mm -hmm. um, of wolves on, on, you know, ranching operations. And uh, the number, you said that you couldn't think of the numbers. The numbers are that wolves kill like less than 1%, like of, of you know, livestock reporting from mm -hmm. the USDA, livestock death reporting, less than 1% of that is from wolves, which is mm -hmm. less than Livestock that die from weather. Okay. So we're talking like getting a cow getting struck by lightning or something like really crazy. Like that's yeah. like less wolves depredate on cattle than that die from weather. So that's pretty that when I saw that statistic, I was like, whoa, that's really important because that does tend to get overblown. And I think we do have to have some concern for ranchers who are trying to make a living out there, whether you support that or not. You know, they exist there for a while, whatever but it's not really a real concern it seems. And there are lots of programs in place, like I said, to compensate these ranchers. So if ranchers come up with this argument, we can't have wolves because it's gonna put us out of business and you are sympathetic towards that. Well, it's important to look a little bit closer and realize that's not quite an argument. I, I will say one thing that you don't have to comment on Haley or not, but something I noticed in terms of the cultural issue around this and I found it really fascinating. So when I was in Oregon and I was living in one of the cities there, we trucked our folks out to these rural areas where these hearings were being held. And I would hear some of the rural folks talk about no wolves and then all these city folks coming in and saying, yes, wolves. And I did have a bit sympathy of sympathy for them in terms of, okay, here are people living in the city who don't even live in the natural environment dictating how things should be in the rural areas. And so I would argue is it's not even about the science or the statistics. It's this feel of city folks, the city slickers making decisions for the folks who are actually living out 
in the wild areas, and they may be incorrect about their concerns about whether a wolf is going to hurt them or <laughs> do things to the children in the playground or eat their sheep. But I think there's a little bit of rancor with these city people don't even know what they're talking about. They don't live out here like I do. I don't want them telling me what to do, and that's why I'm going to be contrary. Do you have any opinion on that, or you can take the fifth? Yeah, no, I um, I think that I agree with you, right? Like, that's that's not ideal. But if we go back to that survey that we mentioned earlier right. in this podcast, I think I'm pretty sure that, like, when it comes down to it, the the you know, majority of people wanting wolves is, you know, across the urban rural divide, like it's mm -hmm. still, you know, no matter what, but again, like getting back to that mo vocal minority right. um, Good point. Is, is actually saying that. So I, I think that that divide is less of a divide than we think. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, I do agree, you know, I live in a city. I am not from a, well, I'm from Mississippi, which is fairly rural, but like in Colorado, I, I live in Boulder, right? So um, it is hard for us to say that. And also, I mean, though, you know, the ecosystem is an issue for everybody, not just um, rural people or urban people. Um, and with outdoor recreation and wildlife watching being one of the leading economic drivers in the state of Colorado and like needing that healthy, healthy ecosystem for that economic driver. Um, I tend to maybe lean on that mm -hmm. over, you know, this like, you know, urban people shouldn't be telling rural people what to do thing. Um, at the end of the day, mm -hmm. ecosystems need to be healthy. Climate change is happening. You know, we're in the sixth mass extinction, you know, like climate change, you know, we're just in all of these, like all of these catastrophes are coming around us and, and compounding on one another. Like really when it comes down to it, that's the big picture that we need to be talking about. Like not mm -hmm. who yeah. told who to do what personally. No, to totally agree. It's just, I think helpful to understand where some of this is coming mm -hmm. from. And maybe those of us who do live in city areas, I recently moved up into the Hills just to, to get, to get away from things. But <laughs> having having some sympathy for some of the folks who live out there and trying to be able to speak to them in their own language and realizing that, yes, there are all these other economic opportunities for land protection. And a lot of these folks really do love the land. They just have a little bit different view on it. So I haven't given up talking to those folks. And I think you're right. A lot of rural folks are changing their mind or have been in favor of protections from the start. So it's not simply that city rural divide, but I do think that's part of it. But so we're talking about landscapes, how important it is to protect land. You can't just have a law that says, oh, this creature is protected and there's nowhere for it to go and live. I recently had a podcast I was saying, are you an ecosystem patriot? And I was just kind of making up this term that doesn't make any sense, but tying into 4th of July and stuff like that. But so land protection being an important thing, you've worked on some issues of habitat connectivity. So Tell us a little bit about what that is and why should we care about that term? Yeah, I agree. Um, so habitat connectivity is kind of this really big thing that's, you know, it's hard to look at, it's hard to touch, and so it's a little abstract. But uh, to do my best to define it for you, it is, um, connectivity is the ability of wildlife um, to move from one area to another to fulfill their roles in the natural world. And I want to emphasize that wild, when I say wildlife, I mean, you know, of course, like mammals, 
fish, birds, but also bugs, you know, mm. plants. Plants need to be able to disperse their seeds and for them to move place. So connectivity, like, involves the ability of all of these, all of the creatures, all of the non-human beings to be able to move in this sense. And um, wildlife often use core habitats to do their things. You know, you might have a core habitat with a great stream or a river or some kind of resource or maybe, you know, a... Uh, a, a den, you know, a bear den is over here in this other habitat and they need to move from, from one core habitat to another to do what they need to do and get the resources that they need, find mates. Um, and so wildlife actually, they need corridors to move in between those core habitats. Hmm. Um, and core habitats are often on our public lands because these areas are typically large and protected. And so I'm um, just to kind of give you those few definitions, you know, connectivity is the ability is like you know, the overall ability for wildlife to be able to move and wildlife use corridors to move um, from, you know, one habitat to another. But the issue is that, um, you know, whether it's a fence, a shopping mall, a neighborhood, a road, all of these things stand in the way of wildlife movements and they cause fragmentation, mm -hmm. uh, habitat fragmentation. Mm -hmm. And Habitat loss and fragmentation are the biggest drivers of species decline and extinction worldwide. And so in Colorado, as we're seeing, um, you know, of course, you know, we've been talking for, you know, how many decades about the, the population expansion in Colorado mm -hmm. that comes with the need for new houses, new neighborhoods. I'm sure, you know, all of your listeners can identify, you know, new housing development that's popping up on a road that they that they drive off in. I mean, it's, 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 you know, we're just exploding here also because mm -hmm. Colorado is great, but we have to um, develop responsibly. Anyway, that was my little rim, but um, mm -hmm. to kind of stay with the, the uh, like what is connectivity and why is it bad? Um, so, right. We're in the sixth mass extinction. Wildlife around the world are declining. Colorado is not an exception to that. Um, and a, there are some wildlife need to be able to move more than others. You know, like, uh, of course, deer and elk, that's the, you know, the, base, the really good example poster child here. They need to be able to um, do their daily and seasonal migrations to move. And, you know, often when they can't do that, you see increased vehicle wildlife collisions in certain areas, which is, you know, bad for bad for that wildlife because um, it's probably not going to survive that. But then also, you know, bad for um, property damage, human life is in danger. Um, and then also another really important point here is climate change. Uh, habitat connectivity, increased habitat connectivity can actually um, help with climate change adaptation. Our Rocky Mountains out here are very likely going to serve as climate refuge for species. But that's only as our, as our climate warms, they'll want to move up to colder, you know, move up in elevation where it's a little cooler, but that can only happen if they can get there. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the issue. You know, when our cities and our roads are standing in the way, like there's, there's parts of I-70 west of Denver that are just impenetrable by wildlife. And some experts have said that I-70 is one of the biggest barriers to wildlife migration between Canada and Mexico. Mm -hmm. Like, let me say that again. The biggest barrier between you know, like our, in our continent in the North American continent might be, you know, our I, I 70 corridor West of Denver. So like yep. 
this habitat connectivity issue is it's one that it's harder to see. It's harder to touch. We can't just look at a species and, you know, know that it's disappearing, but you know, we can, when, if we look at, you know, if one is lucky enough to be in a plane, um, and they look down, you know, you'll see all the different stripes that are in our ecosystem and you can like see the fragmentation anyway. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, I'll pause there. Yeah. I think that's, that's a great point. And I just want to make a little caveat. So public lands, obviously that's, where a lot of this connectivity can happen. They're protected, but sort of, they're not even really completely protected. There's still plenty of extraction, logging and stuff like that going on a lot of these lands. I actually just stumbled across a, a state wildlife area the other day and I was trying to sneak in through this back way into this wilderness area. So going through the state wildlife area connects to national forests and it goes into wilderness. Uh, I was just kind of wandering around there and I found this pretty large logging project that literally went right up to the national forest. So okay. state wildlife, there's still public lands. So we went literally right up to this fence, the national forest. So that's sort of issues there. You mentioned development, you mentioned climate change. Would you say fracking is also a potential impact to connectivity and wildlife issues? Yeah, hundred percent. Anything that's, that's like, Ugh, I, I hate to say it this way, but it's like anything that humans do is going to cause some degree of fragmentation. Like yeah. even, um, you know, is great. Like outdoor recreation. I'm a recreationist. I climb, mm -hmm. I camp, I snowboard. Um, and you know, outdoor recreation huge for the economy in Colorado. We we hit that already. But like even our outdoor recreation, mm -hmm. like even walking in in the wild, the wilderness yeah. is is creates some degree of fragmentation. Actually, depending on the species, a walking trail, like a hiking trail, can create a 200 meter impact zone hmm. on either side of that walking trail. Like mm -hmm. we're not talking ATVs, we're not talking off-roading, even like even mountain biking, just walking. That's and so that's about a football field on either side of a walking trail. Yeah. Um, that so within that football field on either side, wildlife are, are just disturbed and disrupted, and, and we actually change their our walking in the forest changes their behavior. Yeah. So um, just recognizing as important as outdoor recreation is for our hearts and our souls, and um, we we just need to be responsible and make sure we're thinking about this because this is habitat connectivity is one of those issues that's compounding. Right. Like, you know, a house here and a house like a few miles over there, you know, yeah, no big deal. But when we have a bunch of houses and a bunch of roads leading to those houses, like that becomes compounded and then add, you know, people that want to walk out their back door and go on a trail like this is a made up example. But like all of that compounds and eventually we get into situations you know, where we are, like in the sixth mass extinction, where ecosystems are um, collapsing, we're, you know, in the insect apocalypse, and when all the insects die, you know, I don't know, I, uh, mm -hmm. I could go on, but um, that's kind of the issue here. And, and for people, like, let's bring humans into this. It's so it's bad for the wildlife, right? It makes their lives harder, lives hard enough when you um, are a deer that's just trying to eat and a mountain lion grabs your throat, you know, but um, we're making that we're making that harder for them. But talk about people like, healthy ecosystems mitigate disease. And, um, you know, so in, in areas where wildlife can move freely in and out, you actually see a decrease in diseases like Lyme disease. Um, so healthy ecosystems, right. And when you, Oh God. And like, we could, speaking of disease, let's go to COVID. Let's talk about that for two seconds because, okay. <laughs> because, uh, because of like our ability to move into ecosystems, like where we, you know, maybe previously weren't and we're taking species out of 
those ecosystems and we're putting them together like in areas or in spaces where they normally wouldn't ever interact, right? So if we're talking about COVID, they're saying, you know, maybe it was went from a bat to a pangolin to humans, like we're not completely sure, but you know, a bat and a pangolin wouldn't normally intermix. Mm -hmm. But now like humans are going out into habitats, creating fragmentation, bringing them back, you know, putting them in areas where they're pooping on each other and peeing on each other. And um, then humans are going in and, and getting mixed up in that and, you know, eating something, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But um, like all of the, this habitat fragmentation and degradation is the, and, and making things unnaturally mix together is like what's what created the pandemic. Like that's the reason why you can't go outside or walk into like or walk into a store without a mask on. Mm -hmm. It's our treatment of wildlife and are like how we're disrespecting ecosystems and disrespecting that. And so like habitat connectivity, right. It just healthy ecosystems mitigate disease period. And so making sure that we're treating, you know, animals, right. Stopping illegal wildlife trades, like certain types mm -hmm. of wildlife trade. Um, and then you go, well, should I pause? I have more. I could, I could go in, but <laughs> no, I'm, Keep, keep going. No, I think that's one of the most important issues. And actually, that's something I've been focusing my sights on more and more is that connection between landscape degradation and encroaching into ecosystems and the spread of disease. I think that's really, really central. In fact, I'm thinking of starting up a, an effort specifically around that. And I definitely want to talk to more folks about it. So if you have anything more to say about it, please go ahead. Well, yeah, I guess the last thing I'll add before I move on to other human benefits is of, of habitat connectivity is just, you know, these people are, you know, I saw a whole video this morning on the Facebook, which is evil, right? That's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> um, but there was this video about all these people like, you know, saying like, oh, I have to wear masks. Like the government's trying to regulate my breathing. Well, I don't personally agree with that because mm. they're not regulating our breathing. But like, if you're really mad at somebody, like, be mad at the super lax laws right. that we have around wildlife. Like, that's what you should be mad about. Mm -hmm. um, okay, mm -hmm. so I'm gonna segue back into you know other benefits of healthy healthy ecosystems that we get as humans. Right, mitigating disease. We also um, get that uh, peace and freedom that we need. That mental health from being in, in healthy ecosystems. Um, and then also it cleans our air, cleans our water, carbon sequestration, climate change mitigation. Um, it help, they help mitigate floods. I know in Colorado, like people might be surprised. We're no stranger to floods here. Um, and so there's just a lot of really important things that humans need that we get for free from the ecosystem. And, you know, as we like just if we're talking about money is the bottom line, which is often unfortunately the case, like as we destroy our ecosystem, like it's only going to cost us more money mm -hmm. in the end. Like, sure, like logging puts dollars in somebody's pocket, but it sure ain't mine. And if anything, it's going to cost me more down the line because of everything that's going to happen that we won't Ugh, okay yeah, <laughs> now those are myself out right now so super um, super important points bumming everybody else out no i mean this this is the stuff we need to talk about we need to be able to frame the problem to be able to address it and i think sometimes we're not framing things properly so i think that's super crucial and yeah even if you want to look at things through an economic lens protecting landscapes, protecting ecosystems makes a lot of sense. And of course it goes way beyond economics. Maybe let's uh, talk about a couple more projects. So 
So let's talk a little bit about what you were talking about, uh, monarch butterflies. Maybe that's <gasps> something we're talking about other critters. So critters that run around and critters that, you know, bite things. But here we have little fluttering creatures. So let's talk about that. And then we'll get into moving biodiversity into the topic of diversity. And maybe we'll finish up on that. Great. Yeah. So monarch butterflies, right? They're um, so pretty and they're declining like everything else. Mm. <laughs> um, uh, so... Um, where do I want to go with this? So interestingly, I think oh, it's funny. My messaging was um, recently around this project that I'm doing was recently um, challenged in a nice way. And so I edited it a little bit. So um, I guess, okay, what I, what I would normally say is there's an Eastern population of monarchs and then there is a Western population of monarchs. And um, both populations have declined drastically. The Western more so. Um, so the number from Xerxes Society is that, oh, uh, the Western population of monarchs has declined by over 99%, hmm. um, wow. which That's with terrible. that number, yeah. So like historically in the 1980s, 70s or 80s, there was, the number was, there was 4.2 million, um, individuals in the Western population. And now we're looking at about 30,000. So it's Oof. just like, so That's, like they're, wow. you know, gone. And we like rarely see them in Colorado, although Colorado, they, they say is at the edge of their migration, but, um, mm. Um, and, and I think people in the Southeast Colorado get to see them a bit more than we do up here in, um, up North. But, um, the reason I had hesitated about the, the Western and Eastern populations is because a friend of mine, um, uh, Sergio Avela, he is a biologist that has done a lot of work on monarchs. He recently explained to me, he was like, he was like, why are we talking about Eastern Western populations? He's like, I've documented Eastern butterflies that have gone west and western butterflies that have gone down to mexico um so that's just really cool it kind of just goes to show you that you know as people we like to silo things and say like these this group does this and this group does that and you know nature doesn't always like to hear to our little definitions of things but um right nature doesn't like borders yeah right right and neither do people but that's a different <laughs> conversation um but so i'm doing this really cool project um where we are folding monarch butterflies, um, origami monarch butterflies. And of course, um, I was inspired by uh, Seiko Sasaki, who is the uh, young girl that uh, died 10 years after the bombing of Hiroshima. She died due to leukemia from being exposed during the bombing. And so um, and she, she was folding cranes and cranes is very significant in Japanese culture. We're folding monarch butterflies, but I kind of, um, I, I want to name that she is where we got the inspiration for this. And you know, just as she was attempting to heal herself by folding monarchs, we are hoping to heal the, the monarch population out here by folding monarchs. Um, and as people are doing that, uh, they're writing, you know, why monarchs are important to them and we're folding them and I'm collecting them and we're going to bring them to senators, the senators and say like, Hey, you know, we need to take this seriously, hmm. um, and protect them because actually monarchs were petitioned to be listed on the endangered species act in 2014. That still hasn't happened. Um, Nothing has happened. But actually, uh, in this December is like a deadline. It's some imposed deadline where they're supposed to decide if monarchs are listed. And so I'm hoping, you know, this is really good timing for this project. We're going to have, you know, ideally thousands and thousands of monarchs cool. to show for people and that each of those monarchs represents, you know, a wish or a desire from a constituent in Colorado to, um, yeah, 
to help. And so um, if folks are interested, you can go to endangered.org slash monarch origami. And um, there's also, if you go to that webpage, there's also a link that you can go to find all the materials in Spanish, hmm. uh, which was really important to us because I know that you know, monarchs are um, especially important to a certain indigenous cultures in Mexico. They mm -hmm. represent, or sorry, they don't represent. They are, they are the spirits of their deceased loved ones. Um, and so, um, yeah, this is just a really important issue, really important cultural issue, really important um, biological issue um, that we're paying attention to. And we really want them to, they need to be listed. So we're trying to make that happen. I think that's a really cool project. And I think that's way more effective than just an online petition. Who knows if that even gets to them. I suggest y'all going into the halls of Congress and just dumping it from <laughs> up high on the heads of the senators and Congress people. I think that would be, so if you need somebody to do that, uh, <laughs> give me a call. But yeah, I think that's a very clever way of bringing arts into it and an engagement in it. And that can be a lot more interesting than just writing another letter to a congressperson, which we should still do. We should still call them. We should still email them and pressure them. But I think this is that's a really, really clever thing. So I like that. And it's bummed to hear 30,000 monarchs. That's like nothing. That's really, really awful. And so it's sometimes we don't pay attention to certain critters. But so maybe real quick, why, why ecologically are monarchs important? So this is a good question. I've actually, somebody else recently asked me that, like, why is this one butterfly so important? And um, one reason is because they feed other stuff. Like mm -hmm. butterflies, they feed birds, they feed frogs, they feed, you know, all of their, so it's like that kind of like lower on the, like that foundational, like it feeds the things that feed all the other things. Um, but then also for ecosystems to be healthy, and I'm not going to get this perfectly right, but there's four, like for, for ecosystems and recovery to have, like to be healthy and happen, there's four R's and it's redundancy, resiliency, and I'm spacing on the last R, but um, for some reason I always remember those two, but redundancy is so important because, you know, if you lose one, your one thing that does one eco service, it's okay because you still have a bunch of other stuff. So while like, you know, one type of butterfly if we lost like sure that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world but like mm -hmm. you know we're losing species after species after species like we're in you know they're calling it the insect apocalypse um mm -hmm. that like we're just losing bugs right which again like feed everything yep. um and so yeah that's why that one species is so important because of redundancy and, and i mean there of course there's other reasons too like that's just the biological reason like the other reason is culturally like i said they are the souls of um deceased loved ones and our ans and ancestors of certain cultures so like 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 i have tulips right now like what if someone lost their connection to their ancestors like that's super effed mm -hmm. um so like like from a human culture perspective we have a responsibility to protect these species from a biological perspective. We have a responsibility and, you know, we could talk economic because again, wildlife watching and outdoor recreation are the number one, you know, one of not number one, like the biggest drivers of the economy in Colorado. So like, there's always going to be that, that ethical, cultural, biological and economic argument. Like, I feel like nobody's convinced me that right. like when I, when I bring those points up, like change my mind, try, but right. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it seems like a no-brainer protecting some butterflies, and there's not really any interest groups out there saying, oh, well, the monarch butterflies are going to attack my children or they're <laughs> going to eat my pets. I haven't heard of that happening. However, if there was a flock of monarch butterflies that did attack a cow, that would be kind of interesting. So mm -hmm. let's, let's get into the... 
final topic that we're going to talk about, so my clever segue, not so clever, was from biodiversity into diversity. So you had mentioned stuff mm -hmm. around diversity, equity, and inclusion issues tied into how wildlife, access to wildlife is a privilege for some of us and not for others. What's, what is that about and what is the importance of that issue? Yeah, well, first I want to say, as a representative of the Endangered Species Coalition, Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. Um, and we stand uh, with those seeking justice for um, pe for people of color that have been killed by the police. Like we are, mm -hmm. we want to be there and support and like Black Lives Matter. Um, yes, and this is wildlife and access to wildlife is uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion issue. I mean, not just to mention like the health benefits of nature that so many groups of people don't have access to. I mean, they, so like they say, if there's trees in your neighborhood, your neighborhood is going to be a few degrees cooler than neighborhoods where there aren't trees. And so talking about climate change and like risks of heat stroke, you know, those communities of color are going to be more at risk than white communities that have lawns and trees. Um, also, you know, there's that study that's like, you know, if you're in the hospital and you have a, even a picture of nature, you know, that you'll recover faster. And so when certain groups of people have more access to nature than others, that's that's a health issue. That's an equity issue. Um, also, like want to call out that um, we're seeing way higher instances of COVID-19 in communities of color. They are being hit mm -hmm. harder than white communities because of lack of access to certain resources and, and nature being one of them. Um, right. Like, I mean, you know, again, I live in Boulder. We are so privileged here. There's, I'm surrounded by over a hundred thousand acres of county and city open space. Yep. Like that's my privilege. And like, I, my rent's really expensive and I hate it, but like, <laughs> I, I am privileged to be able to pay that. And like, there are people that don't have that privilege. And so this is something that, um, or God, like even the privilege for like, clean air and clean water. Like I don't want, there's like, you know, certain parts of Denver that I don't want to live in, yep. that that's the only places certain other people can afford to live in. So, I mean, it's kind of, it's just, it's just effed at the end of the day. Right. Because, um, you know, yeah, Ugh, it's so, fr yeah. Okay. I'm getting I'm frustrating myself again and getting off track, but, um, that's kind of like the, the basis of where we're coming from. Um, and like, I think, the like my baseline point is that we can't have healthy ecosystems without justice for everyone and we can't have justice for everyone without healthy ecosystems and so as i am working you know to protect wildlife and you know also working to make sure that the way i'm doing my work is inclusive uh, because you know, the big, the big green organizations have traditionally been very white and um, have been exclusive of voices from people of color. And also, you know, there's all of this stuff going on around um, people of color not being welcome in, in, in na nature, in spaces, um, natural spaces, which is um, more coming to light more, which is awesome, especially because, like... <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing at myself because I'm rant ranting, but um, like our national parks and our public lands were built on a foundation of racism. Like they're like black people were not allowed in our national parks 
for like a while. And also we displaced, like we'd already displaced Native Americans when we stole their land, when white settlers stole their land. And then we displaced them even more when we were like, oh, just kidding, we wanna put a national park here. And the only way that you can stay on your land is if you weave baskets for tourists. So that, that's happened in Yosemite. Mm -hmm. So I, um, so it's almost like we made like a zoo out of Native American people to entertain white people. And it's like, so not only, you know, is this kind of continuing on that people of color have less access to nature, thus less access to health in a lot of ways, we're also just seeing like the conservation movement itself being based on racism and exclusion, like the North American model for wildlife conservation, you know, the thing that all biologists, not all biologists, but a lot of biologists in the United States are trained under and kind of live by, like that was even built on exclusion of voices like native peoples, um, et cetera. I mean, and it even, you know, like native peoples often you know, don't see wildlife and land as property. So even having that as a like key point in the North American model in our society, like that automatically makes society exclusive to that group of people. I just, I am, grr, I'm so mad at it. Uh, but that's kind of like where we're coming from when we talk about um, conservation, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, yep, I'll pause. So, yeah, those are all really important issues. And I think a lot of times folks who work on wilderness issues tend not to be paying attention as much to the cultural intersections. And I think that's really important to do so. I know I feel very privileged now. I live up in the mountains and pretty much on a hourly basis, I try to remind myself, here's the view. I saw a lizard through my window yesterday, which for some mm -hmm. reason was a big, big momentous occurrence. I saw a double rainbow. This has happened the last Dang. two days. So that's because I get to live up here and not everyone has that opportunity. So I do think that's really important. And then uh, a lot of historical injustices. And of course, this is not an easy thing to address, but how can the environmental movement or the conservationists correct some of those historical injustices you mentioned moving forward? Mm -hmm. So our organization is, you know, we're just trying to like, I mean, this is the most basic thing, but we're we're looking internally at ourselves. We're looking internally at our staff, which is mostly white and mostly women, um, too. Uh, but we're looking internally at our staff and seeing that it's fairly homogenous, um, as well as our board is fairly homogenous. So that is one way that um, we're trying to get to improve ourselves, as well as things that um, the environment, entire conservation community can do. And then also just like in my daily work, I'm learning... There's so much stuff that I can do, like really basic stuff like, you know, translating my materials into Spanish, mm -hmm. making sure that I am, you know, when I'm outreaching for my events, I'm not just outreaching in places where white people are, that I'm outreaching beyond that. And a lot of that mandates that I, as a white woman, get out of my normal, like my comfort zone, because you know, I'm a white person. So I know, you know, I hang out where white people hang out and like, I know what white people do. And if I can expand my sense of normal to include, uh, you know, whether it's just like restaurants or music or movies or whatever it is that, um, I'm seeing, so I'm seeing the other people's perspectives, like that helps me, um, become a more, uh, what's the word I want? Like, 
it just helps me become a more open and thoughtful person. So I'm not, so that whiteness is less my norm. Um, and what I mean is this is kind of getting a little, um, this is, the, it's all, it's all tricky to, to define and explain, but what I mean by whiteness as a norm is, you know, in America, it's, you know, you're a person and, uh, a person of color is a black person or a Latino person, but a white person is just a person. Like that's kind of one very basic example of white as normal. Um, and so trying to expand my sense of normal is something that I'm working on and that's bleeding into my work um, by I'm just thinking more about like, well, where are the not white people? And I know that these issues are tricky to talk about and they're like scary, but um, I keep reminding myself that uh, Van Jones, who is an environmental justice, like mega guy, awesome guy. Um, he, he says that everyday working with environmental justice issues is like, like you're just, every time you turn around, you step on a rake, you know, there's just like a ton of rakes around mm -hmm. you and you're trying to like walk and progress, but like you just keep stepping on a rake cause you just keep screwing up and you just keep hitting in the face. But the, the point is to like be willing to step on a rake and be willing to like be corrected for your mistake and then learn from it and then move on. And so I feel like I'm getting really comfortable with just like screwing up and saying things messy. And also when a, a colleague of mine or a friend of mine says like, Haley, maybe don't do it that way. Like as long as I'm, I am willing to say like, okay, not get my feelings hurt and just move on and do it a little better next time. Like that's, what's been serving me so well, um, in this work. Like even yesterday I was like, you know, is it, um, appropriate for me to ask you X, Y, Z. And the per person said like, no, actually, please don't. But thank you so much for asking. And I was like, awesome. You know, okay. I just learned something. So, um, yeah, it starts with, it starts with us, I think is my point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think everything does looking inward, I think is really important and something that we don't do that much as a species and being willing to be wrong and it being okay to be wrong because that's how you learn and most importantly having conversations because these conversations are the way that we get to the root of issues and we find out what makes sense and what doesn't we learn about the past uh, we understand to a greater depth our present and so that we can really clearly see our future and so Haley I really appreciate you coming on the podcast to talk with me about all these issues yeah 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 thank you so much it was a blast I feel very energized I hope I didn't rant too much and um, feel free to, yeah, let your re readers know how to get a hold from hold of me. I'm here. I'm ready tell, for questions. Tell them real quick how to get a hold of you. Yeah. Well, my email address is hhawkins, that's H-H-A-W-K-I-N-S at gmail, oop, whoops, at endangered.org. Um, if you have any questions about the issues that we talked today, talked with today, if you want to learn more about how to volunteer, how to help endangered wildlife, I am your, I'm your person. So please send me an email, hhawkins at endangered.org. And you can check out our website, um, for the endangered species coalition, which is just endangered.org to learn more. And we're doing all kinds of fun stuff all of the time. I am so busy. Um, but I am not busy enough to talk to you because talking is obviously what I enjoy doing, as you've learned in the last over an hour. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you do enjoy talking because I definitely enjoy listening to you. So you take care. <laughs> Great. Thanks, Josh.